The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullick. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Fullick. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullick, and as each week goes by, we're going to be talking about different facets and components related to business continuity management and disaster planning programs. This week, I'm going to focus on how we manage some of these programs. How do we get to our plans? And when we're building the plans, what do we need to, steps and activities do we need in place to make sure that we have the most effective, smooth process in place as possible and being able to address any issues we encounter or risks or if suddenly something comes along we need to change things how do we manage all of that and that's called project management so that's what we're going to talk about today project management the difference with program management and I have a special guest a friend that I've known for a while who's an expert in project and program management Sue Roz Baker and Sue has many years experience in project and program management and she's going to give us lots of insight on how we can manage our disaster programs and move them along so that they can be the most effective they can be. Sue, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. It's uh, nice to have you here. I know I've known you for a few years and I know you're uh, quite the expert in project management and I thought of you right away when I knew this was a subject I uh, wanted to touch base on. I know you're quite passionate about it. So Yes, I am. Uh, I've been doing it for quite some time. Uh, um, I'll just say a year or two. That's, that's all I'll say. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to give away my age. <laughs> so can you give us um, uh, a little bit of uh, your biography, you know, what your background sure. is, some of the things you've done, and you know, where, where, how you got into project management? Sure, and it was. I am an accidental project manager. I've been uh, PMP certified project manager since 2007, so ooh, it's 10 years now. <laughs> um, before that, what, what, does PM, uh, what does PMP stand for? Just uh, project so management professional. Uh, that's the the governing organization that that certifies most project managers. There's two main certifications. There's PRINCE two, that's the British one, uh, driven by the British government. And then uh, PMP was uh, originated of the American Civil Service. And uh, so it was a certification that uh, was, it's been around for quite some time. Uh, I know I've been PMP for 10 years, and when I became a PMP, it had been around for quite some time. But it was meant to, to instill not, not a rigid methodology, but a set of guidelines that and guideposts that project managers should follow. So if you're a PMP certified project manager, you, you know what you're getting. 
because okay. we have a certain uh, baseline of knowledge. So it's no different than the certifications you have for sure. Okay. Um, so before that, though, my background's a little eclectic. I actually started off as a lawyer uh, and switched into uh, when I, my 20s when I decide, discovered that it wasn't suited for me to be a lawyer. I was good at it, just didn't like it. Um, I, I had a very supportive wife who uh, uh, helped me transition to uh, a new career in technology. So I went back to school, worked in technology, and I suppose because of the legal background, uh, I found myself being pushed into the project management role, and I discovered actually that was what I was meant to do. So, oh, And I've been doing it ever since. Completely by accident. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> ah. Well, I'm sure all the people that you've worked with are very glad to have had you uh, go in that direction. Yeah, I, 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 so I, let, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's jump right into things. Can you explain sure. what is program management? What is project management? Sure. Well, program management is one of those. It has many, many definitions, but in this context, program management uh, really entails the management of a group of projects. So, or um, uh, a series of efforts. So a project is usually a discrete piece of work that's got to start a beginning, or sorry, beginning, a middle, and an end. Uh, it, it, it's discrete. Whereas a program can have five, six different projects involved that all kind of work close enough together that they're trying to achieve uh, a common goal. Uh, but the, the, the project is where the tactical decisions are made, and the program is probably where you would see the strategic decisions being made. So at the program management level, you would be determining whether a project would live or die, whereas at the project level, you would be determining whether a task or a group of tasks would live or die, if that ah. makes any sense. Well, that makes sense. So for those in disaster planning, it would be you know, developing a business impact analysis would be a project but that would just yeah. be a project under the overall disaster planning program. Exactly. It's a, that's, a, that's exactly the best analogy, yeah. Okay, great. So what makes up project management, program management? What different pieces? I, I know when we've con, uh, conversed, well, we've sent emails back and forth, there was a list of some things that are applicable in, well, any project and program. So um, as we talk, can we go through that list and you can give us an insight sure. as to yeah, what that absolutely. is? Yeah, for okay. sure. And, and again, Let's, I'll speak at the project level. Uh, I, I just wanted at the beginning, at the top, uh, identify the difference with the program level. Uh, you're... you're Working at a higher level, and you're you're working more with the executive, and you're making more strategic decisions. But it really, everything you do at the program level is derived from what happens at the project level. So I find it's more useful to discuss things at the project level. But just remember, as I'm speaking at the project level, that you can bubble things up. So you can be when I talk about a decision log, that could be bundled up into one big decision log at the program level, for example. So so just think of a program as a bubble up and a sifting and a filtering of of key items that the executive needs to see, uh, whereas the project manager sees everything. So, okay. okay. So, great. one of the first first topics I uh, probably should talk about, uh, because it's my style as a project manager, is risk and issue management. Uh, if people think, well, why are you doing that at the beginning? <laughs> Don't you deal with issues as you go along? And I uh, tend not to look at it that way. I tend to look at risks as uh, probably, risk management is probably the most fundamental and most important thing a project manager does. Uh, first, at the outset, identifying the risks. There's a term out there, I don't know if you know it, Alex, uh, known unknowns and unknown unknowns, or known unknowns and unknown yep. unknowns, have you yep. ever heard that? Yep. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, it's kind of what you do. 
And so yeah. <laughs> project manager's job is to help uh, work with the team. Project manager never does anything on their own, but they, they get the team to assist them in identifying the known unknowns. Right, and so that's mm-hmm. what you try to do at the beginning of the project, throughout the project. You manage your risk register throughout the project, but at the beginning, you try to identify as many of these items as you can, and and then the executive at the program level would say, okay, they're they, they're a good bunch of guys and gals. They're pretty smart. They figured out a lot of uh, known unknowns. But you know what? I'm going to add an additional contingency budget on here to account for the unknown unknowns. And depending on the strength of the team, the team's history, uh, the, the age of the company, and just the general knowledge, that discretionary unknown unknown budget will change. Sometimes it'll be 20%, sometimes it'll be 25%, sometimes it'll be 5% because the team has a history of delivering and they're delivering projects of a very similar nature over time and it becomes a little bit more predictable. So, so, so what I usually do is I'll create a register called a, a RAID, and that stands for Risks, Assumptions, Issues, and Dependencies. And the reason why I put all those things together is because uh, I find something can evolve into something else. So uh, an assumption could become a dependency. Uh, an assumption could also become a risk. A risk eventually could manifest into an issue, despite all the efforts mm-hmm. you uh, put in to try to mitigate or prevent that risk from happening. Right. So I like to put all those items in, in the same register and then keep managing it throughout the project. So every single day as a project manager, I'm opening up one or more raids, depending on how many projects I've got on the go at any one time. And so I live in that raid, and I make sure I validate on a daily basis, and then periodically, when when, when I can with the team, we'll sit and we'll do a raid review just to make sure our assumptions are still valid. Uh, we've got the right contingency plans and mitigation plans and transference plans in place for our risks. And, uh, we fa- and, we, and we do this early and we do it often and we factor anything that comes out of a risk analysis into tasks in a project plan. Right? So, right. or actions in an action log, or a decision that goes in the decision log, or a change that has to go into the project change log. So all of these things generally are driven by risks and issues management. So yes, you identify all the tasks that you need to complete. You do your, your analysis of what your, your work breakdown and your product breakdown structure is going to be. You determine what your schedule is going to be. You have a nice Gantt. Everything's beautiful. But that is all subject to what happens. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't always turn that, out that way. <laughs> that pool of risk, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, you have to plan to uh, have issues, right? <laughs> so right. you have to yep, factor yep. that in. Yeah, and if you don't work that way um, as a project manager, uh, you're, you're not going to succeed. So one of the things I do um, when I put that rate together is I put a rag. You're familiar with the rag status, red, amber, green, you know, the traditional stoplight. I'm sure any yep. time anybody's worked as a project manager, they've seen that red, amber, green. But the rag is uh, an indicator that you can use in your regular status reporting, right, uh, to go through and identify it and evaluate your risks. So... Uh, you can have a red risk. I mean, it absolutely has to be dealt with. You have a red issue. It could be a showstopper. Absolutely has to be dealt with. Amber, uh, it's going to surface soon if we don't put something in place. Green, we've got a mitigation and plan. We're keeping an eye on it. It's monitoring, being monitored. And blue, which is kind of a new one, is uh, with an issue for, sorry, with an assumption. I often, if I mark something as validated, I'll mark it as blue. 
so. So, so I'll use that color index. It's a nice visual. It's something the executive will see. Uh, and they can, at an eyeball in a dashboard, uh, look and say, oh, wow, that project's in trouble. I should be sitting down with that project manager and finding out what's going on. And one of the challenges I think that most project managers have, particularly the, the young ones, the new ones, uh, is they, they're scared of the color red. And they're scared of the color amber. And say, oh, I don't want to be red. Oh, they're going to fire me if I go red. And what they don't understand is if they don't go red, they probably will get fired. So I, I don't know how many times I've you know joined an organization or started working with a client. I've encountered a project manager who's, all their projects are green. Everything's great. Nothing ever delivers. But, hey, it's green. Well, that, I've, I've encountered the same thing with business continuity when we identify the risk and go through a risk assessment where uh, a, a factory or a premises that mm-hmm. sits on right beside a river is prone to flooding. Well, that's going to be a red flag. You know, don't hide it by saying it's green. And, you know, where you live on the East Coast of Canada, you get a lot of, I know, a lot of snowstorms and (laughs) especially these last couple of years, you know, that's a major risk. You know, that's going to be red for you. Hiding it with a amber or green, you know, to try and downplay is not going to help you in the long run. No, because eventually the executive will find out and, and, and eventually your project will get cancelled or you will get let go and the project has to be taken over by somebody who has the courage to go red. And so when I, when I talk about red, I, I, I say it, it's basically your way of saying, hey, I'm on top of things and I know I've got an issue here. Right? So it's a badge of honor to say, yes, I've recognized that I've got an issue. And it's red because I need a decision. Uh, we have to decide whether we're going to accept this risk and just take our lumps and add time to the project, you know, uh, to account for it, or we just accept that it's going to happen, or we're going to buy insurance and we'll transfer it off to somebody else. Right? Let somebody else worry about it. Or we're going to put in a mitigation plan, put a bunch of tasks in the project plan to say, you know, for example, uh, if you've got a risk of flooding, uh, maybe we should be moving the data center to another floor. Right. Something like that, right? Uh, in Bermuda, it was, oh, let's uh, move everything off island. <laughs> I lived there for three years and hurricanes happened and pretty much most of what we did was running projects that, that were driven by programs that were disaster planning programs. So, mm-hmm. so, so that was a part of my life for quite some time. So, so yeah, so you want to, um, to call it red, not be embarrassed about it, have the frank discussion with the executive, make a decision, record it in your decision log. If it requires a change to the project, um, you know, record it as a change to the project, uh, secure whatever budget you need if you need it, and, uh, and go through, uh, you know, the formal whatever process that company has uh, in order to affect the change in the project and keep going. Uh, I, I wrote a, a blog article uh, called Risk Management in the Butternut Train. I don't know if you ever read it. Um, and I was writing it uh, after I, I lived in Hamilton, Ontario for a time. And, you know, the escarpment in Hamilton. And you mm-hmm. go up and down That's Hamilton, Ontario uh, for any, uh, anyone outside yes, of Canada. any Americans listening. <laughs> yes. And so Hamilton's a city that's it's bisected by what they call an ancient shoreline or an escarpment. So they call it the mountain, but it really it's just a, a higher piece of ground. So, about 500, so half the city is 500 feet higher than the, the other half of the city. And so anybody who lives on the mountain, they have to go up and down these uh, accesses. So I was stuck in traffic and had been going on for months because there was this project to update one of the accesses. And of course, it had gotten delayed. And the reason why it had gotten delayed, and what was great about this project, you could, I could tell the project manager was solid because they had a really good communications plan, and I knew all about it because I read about it in the paper. So they got the information out there to, to 
kind of belay some of the frustrations of, you know, the travelers going up and down the mountain. So what, what had happened was the, the, the access was through a protected area. The escarpment is a ge- geologically protected area. It's a biosphere, a lot of unique species there. And there was a butternut tree there. That was uh, a very, very rare tree. I think there was, uh, you know, a, a, a very set number of these trees that existed that was resistant to this beetle or this particular uh, infestation. So they had to um, stop all work on the uh, the, the access uh, maintenance uh, to go and deal with this butternut tree, get samples, make sure the roots were protected, and it put the project back months. Now, at the beginning of the project, they would have had a choice to do an environmental assessment and not start the project until that was done, wherein the butternut tree would have been discovered, and they would have done a, you know, a mitigation plan, probably would have taken less time, and they would have proceeded with construction after the fact. But there was some other construction project happening on the highway, so they knew if they didn't get this project in, they would be waiting two, three years potentially um, till they could get their project in. So they made the decision, you know what, we're going to just... Get the torpedoes going. We're going to just go ahead without the environmental sense, the assessment. We'll do it in parallel. And sure enough, the environmental assessment was done in parallel. It threw the project off the rails. But the project did get done in that year. Yes, there was a three-month delay. The project did get done in that year. So depending on how you look at it, that was actually a fairly decent risk management plan. They accepted the risk that they may find something. And then when they found something, they, they put the project on delay, but they avoided a bigger issue with having that project delayed by three years by not getting into the schedule. So that I, I always look at that butternut tree as a really good example of risk management. And it really is in the eye of the beholder, and it really depends on what the stakeholders want. Well, wow, that's great. That's an interesting uh, uh, story, you know, a, a tree. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and on that, we're going to move some other topics and we're going to take a break right now. We'll be right back with uh, Sue Baker and we'll be talking about project management. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has launched our mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. 
Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host, no matter where you are, in the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And welcome back to Preparing uh, for the Unexpected. I'm Alex Fullick, your host, and today we're talking to Sue Baker about project management and how this relates to business continuity management, how we can manage our, our programs and our projects. Sue's talking about the project level, but that applies to all the things we do in BCM, you know, from business impact analyses, risk analyses, to our testing, to our maintenance. So uh, based on uh, our first uh, segment. We talked about risk management and issue management. And Sue, I'm going to turn it over to you to some of the other subjects I know you want to uh, touch base on. Yeah, the, the, what I want to talk about right now is uh, how to do all this, a little bit more tactical uh, information or execution information. It's great to be thinking about all oh, risks and, and change and all of this. And I know a lot of project managers that, uh, you know, they can manage a project via email and maybe a Gantt chart and a spreadsheet or two. I find the best way to manage a project, any sort of project program, uh, is to use a dynamic, editable database that your team can share, so some sort of team sharing site. So SharePoint, um, very popular out there in those uh, establishments that have Microsoft. Um, the one that's coming up uh, and everybody's starting to use is uh, something called Smartsheets. Uh, same idea, maybe not as fully evolved as SharePoint from a data perspective, but much more user-friendly. So it certainly has its its benefits as well. But but the commonality between those two platforms and others out there is that you can allow your team to go in and update their statuses and and be involved in in the management of the project. Um, so so what I usually do is I create various different types of logs. As I mentioned, the RAID. Um, I'll do a change management log. I'll do decision logs to record every decision that was made and assign decision making. So it's a great way to engage the sponsor without having to do a meeting. You can configure your log to say, oh, we need this key decision and configure your log alert system to automatically alert the executive when they can get to it. Uh, they can take a look and if you need a meeting, you'll have it. And, and one of the, and the same thing with an action log. Not everything has to be in a Gantt. The Gantt is really just the flow of the, the key, uh, work pieces that have to be done in a project, but often those work pieces will trigger action items that require some interaction back and forth and status logging and handing something back and forth in order to get something done. So action logs are very handy for that. It's really just a task list, a work queue that the team uses to pass things back and forth in order to achieve the things that are in the schedule. Can you you quickly define exactly what Gantt is for those who may not know what Gantt is? Gantt is a guy's name. Is it really? Is that, yeah, it's somebody's name. You just Google Gantt and you'll, I can't remember his first name, but it was a guy named Gantt who came up with the idea of creating a Gantt chart. <laughs> so it doesn't oh. actually stand for anything. Yeah. 
I, I, I was stunned by it too when I when I was uh, teaching project management uh, and uh, I, you know obviously preparing for classes and whatnot. And yeah, it was, I thought it was hilarious. That it was actually a guy's name. So uh, a Gantt chart really is a project schedule. Uh, Microsoft Project supports Gantt again, Smartsheets and SharePoint, and all of those support Gantt. And so what a Gantt chart is is it's a basically it's a glorified Excel spreadsheet that allows you. So you know you have all your columns, but it allows you to track things like dependencies. So you can have a task with dependencies and predecessors, and you can get fancy with your dependencies, you know, your start finishes and your finish starts and your lags and your your, your slacks and all of those sorts of things. So so when you're getting into detailed scheduling, uh, a Gantt chart is essential. If you're doing a construction project or a disaster uh, preparation project where it's fairly uh specific what it is that you're trying to accomplish, Gantt's are critical. When you're doing software development, more agile projects, Gantt's, uh, waterfall Gantt's particularly, and waterfall Gantt's mean A happens, then B happens, then C happens, and then D happens. Um, right. uh, software projects tend not to go that way anymore. They tend to use more agile met- methodology where they do sprints and they just achieve things uh, on a board. <laughs> they grab their tasks off a board, they work on them, they, they, they develop a, a module, they finish their sprint, and then they go on to the next sprint. So a lot more work happens in parallel. It's a lot more dynamic. It's definitely not waterfall. So that's basically what a Gantt is. It's a project schedule and it's a skill set. Creating and working and managing a Gantt. But a Gantt is kind of like the overall framework for the project and how it's going to run. But as you're working the Gantt and as you're going through the various tasks, there's what they call an 880 rule. You shouldn't create a task less than eight hours or more than 80 hours in, in a Gantt. So you, so you may have an action log where it's a five-minute task, right? You just have to make sure somebody gets something done, right? You're in a status meeting. You have to make sure that, oh, can somebody make sure this router is configured to allow that traffic through for, in order for us to test this? Right? So does that make a Gantt? Maybe, depending on the project. If, if the project's about router configuration, sure. <laughs> right? Um, yeah. But if, if it's just an action that needs to be done in order to satisfy a Gantt task, which is to test something, Right? Then you just track mm-hmm. that as an action. So it just allows you to be more limber, more flexible, stay on top of things, and you can pass these things back and forth. And yes, you can pass Gantt tasks back and forth. Technically, you, know, you can assign them back and forth. But really, uh, Gantt is more of a project manager domain in my experience. And where I like to get the team engaged in giving me status and passing status is in the locks. Because I'm, uh, maybe it's just a bit of paranoia on my part, but I always get a little bit nervous when I have folks that don't understand how to run a Gantt in there mucking about with my Gantt. So a little bit protective as a project manager. <laughs> you can work in the logs, have a party, you know, but I will, I'll keep the Gantt updated. Uh, but that is just a personal preference. A lot of project managers are much more open uh, with, the, with the use of the Gantt. But that's just overall project framework, overall schedule. But you can come up with logs for, and, and trackers for just about everything. I'm on a project right now where I'm working with a vendor who has their own uh, software deliver, deliver, uh, delivery methodology. And uh, so they deliver things in chunks and they they have these, um, they're called surf service um, uh, request forms. And so I'm doing everything by surf. So my team has to make sure that they get their business requirements together for the surf. And so I track all the different surfs in this tracker, right? So it was just a tracker we devised for this project. It's got a, a unique structure that you would never use in another project to satisfy the needs of the vendor that we're working with. So, so one of the things you have to learn as a project manager is to learn to use your imagination and build purpose-built tools to suit the, the problem that you're trying to solve in trying to track something. 
So that's so you perfect. I'm I'm so happy you said that because a lot of contingency planners and and vendors always feel that you know th- there's a, one solution for everybody and everybody should uh-uh. fit to that solution and that's not the case. Uh-uh. And so I'm glad you said Never that. that proje- each project can, is different. It's unique. Yes, you can start with some templates, but if you live and breathe by templates, the only time I use templates is when I'm doing program management for things standard things like the rate or the change log, the decision log. But again, for that client, for that project or that program, we'll agree to a standard. And then it's easier to bubble things up if everybody has the same columns and rows, right? So if you're, you're, you're reporting risks at the program level, then you want to make sure all the project managers are using the same template for the risk. So yes, there are places where a template should be used, but with something like this surf tracker that we invented for this particular project. And I remember for another project we were doing a desktop rollout, I actually had one of my team members build an access database to track the readiness of all the PCs. We had to track whether the software was installed, whether the software is compatible with the new operating system. We had 200 applications we had to test. It's a long story. Thank God they don't have 200 applications anymore. Um, and uh, and we had to track, uh, you know, whether the PC was ready to be shipped and all these different aspects. We had to track all these things to say, yes, this person can be deployed with this PC on that day. Well, nothing existed. So I had one of my team members create an access database to track that, right? Because it, at that point, it was quite a few years ago, that sort of thing didn't exist. Now there's software that you can buy to do that. <laughs> But, yeah. but when you're on a project, you have to be nimble, and you have to uh, to look at what the needs of your client are. And, and PMBOK, uh, which is the guide, the project management um, guide that the PMP certification, make sure you know well before you write the exam, uh, mm-hmm. PMBOK is, is a set of guidelines, and they, give, they tell you, oh, you should do a decision log, but they don't tell you that your decision log should look exactly like this. Right? So they say, yes, you should have a decision log, but it's up to you what that decision log is going to look like and, and how it is that you're going to track things. But it's important that you track things. So they're guidelines, right? They're not rules. And, and I think when you're working in, in, uh, in BCM and when you're working in project management, yes, you have to understand that you need to do these things, but how you do them, it, it really depends on the situation. Planning for a hurricane that's bearing down is going to be completely different than planning for a flood, believe it or not. Because if yep. you're in an island in the middle of the, the, the Pacific or the Atlantic and there's a hurricane bearing down, you've got flights to worry about. It's not like you can get pile people up in a car and have them drive off. And then say they do leave the island well, and everybody's working remotely. Well, what does that look like? And where is that off-site center going to be? And now it's in a different time zone. And now, uh, you, you know, you're dealing with trunks underneath the ocean uh, to make sure, you know, you've got, everybody else is off the island as well. So are you going to have enough bandwidth, right? So right, there's right. a lot of different things you got to think about because you're on an island in the middle of nowhere. Um, I don't know if you remember Hurricane Dean took out Cayman. There was a time when you couldn't actually see Cayman Island. Uh, the Cayman Islands, you couldn't actually see them. They were completely underwater. You could see buildings. That was it. Um, at one point during that hurricane, and then I, I was working in Bermuda, and another office of the company I was working at was in Cayman, and I remember that disaster you know, action plan that you know, some of these things had to be developed on the fly. Uh, a lot was learned from that, and so future events and hurricanes, tropical storms that came up, what they learned from Dean was to start planning these things earlier. 
mm-hmm. and uh, and start getting ready. So when it was, and sometimes it meant over planning. It meant that you put your your strategy in place. You know, when it was still spinning up as a tropical storm, and it didn't actually become a hurricane, or it took a hook and it didn't actually hit you, didn't run you over. So yeah, you did a lot of work to get ready for it. But boy, it would have been it would have been a lot worse if you didn't put the effort in and it did hit you, right? So yeah, you factor you're that reducing in, the impact of what what could have happened, you know. Exactly. So so there was a little bit of a cost and a disruption, right? And so project management's like that. So yes, there's some overhead and you have to pay for your project manager to be thinking about and managing risk. But boy, it's a heck of a lot cheaper to do that than to deal with the consequences of these unknown unknowns because you didn't put effort into knowing them. That's right. I, I like the saying, you know, the, the hardest thing about uh, explaining, uh, you know, what happened in your disaster is explaining is explaining why you didn't plan for a disaster. Yeah. That's harder. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's so much harder. <laughs> yeah. It's so much harder to keep your job, you know, when you're doing that. And, you know, but yeah, it's it's certainly a different story. And and so, so planning and maybe not getting it there 100% and maybe, you know, you didn't get all the servers off the island, but boy, you got 90% of them off before they shut the planes down, right? That's something. Right. Yeah. Right. So, absolutely. So, um, so that's, uh, so, so yes, flexibility, uh, absolutely critical. Uh, and, and, and one other thing, do we have time in this? Is I'd like to talk about one more thing before we go to break. Um, we have, we have four it, minutes. I was just told. Okay. <laughs> I'll sneak it in. Stakeholders. Um, <laughs> So when you're managing risk and when you're 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 looking at uh, your project as a whole, you have to think about who your stakeholders are, and you have to think outside the box when you think about who your stakeholders are. So, for example, when I talk about the hurricane scenario, one of the stakeholders is the airline, right, or the airport, mm-hmm. the people who work in the airport. They're stakeholders in your disaster recovery plan. Right when you're putting that together, um, when you're building a bridge, uh, wildlife are stakeholders. Right, so you sometimes have to think outside the box when you're trying to identify your stakeholders. Yeah, if you're working on a technology project and it's in-house, it's, you know, your executive and your users, there's typical stakeholders, vendors, you know, regulators. If you're doing something that is, uh, involves, you know, if you're working at the bank, particularly your PCI DSS, you know, or you have some sort of regulated industry that you're in. Um, you know, those are common stakeholders that most project managers know how to identify. But what you need to do is start thinking at the box and outside the box and think about the stakeholders that aren't obvious. And uh, and so, for example, trees. Trees are stakeholders. Butternut trees in particular. So, so just remember when you do your stakeholder analysis, think outside the box. Don't uh, confine yourself. It's not just those people you see. It's also the yeah. the downstream impacts as well who become stakeholders. Yes, and yes, exactly, and uh, and so customers are customers, right? So yes, you may be impacting one business. But what about all the feeder businesses that go into that, right? Right, like, so like cleaners. Has- if you if you have third party cleaners that come in and you, you've lost yeah. your building, well, how are you communicating to these third parties? You know, they yeah, they come in exactly. to clean your 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 building. What are you telling them? You know, and, yeah. and people who come and do the carpets and, you know, you may have a cafeteria or cafeteria workers, you yeah. know, all these different people. It's not just here's my business staff and my IT staff. Yes. So you should have a call tree of all the key stakeholders, of all the people you need to get a hold of if you need to communicate something out. Uh, change. Uh, uh, impending change. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? so right. I, absolutely. And, and it, so maybe you can't call a tree, but you can call the scientist that's responsible for that tree. Right. 
Yeah. Ah, that's great. Well, on that note, we're going to take our second break and be right back with Sue, and we'll continue talking about project management. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Aliens with Gas, we are the extraterrestrial rock show airing every Saturday afternoon on the voiceamerica.com variety channel. <laughs> Whatever happens out and about, it kind of dictates our conversation. For sure. And we like to tie in a little bit of the past and obviously keep it real current. And real current was a couple nights ago right here in Phoenix, a phenomenon happened. On Thursday night. Phenomenon. Do, 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 do. <laughs> phenomenon. Do, 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 do. Phenomenon. Do, do. All right, never mind. <laughs> That's every Saturday right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullick. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And welcome back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Today, we're talking with Sue Baker uh, about project management, and we're learning lots of information and tips how we can manage our disaster programs and business continuity programs and the various projects that make up those programs, like risk analyses and business impact assessments and testing and all the other different components that make up our programs. And we're learning lots of interesting little bits here. Uh, So, Sue, now, what is it you'd like to talk about? to on our last segment. I think one of the, it's a very, to, very key piece. Yeah, I want to save it to the end, and that was uh, managing up and managing down. Basically, handling your key stakeholders who are actually on the project. So, managing down, obviously, is uh, managing to your team and making sure that your team uh, trusts you uh, to represent their interests. Uh, as you work through the project. So gaining their trust, uh, if you're a new company, a uh, new, new person to the company, uh, it can take some time. Uh, often uh, team members are skeptical of project managers and they often wonder what value we add. And I think a very good project manager doesn't take too long to have the team depend on them uh, to, to do their bit. Uh, project managers are generally not uh, task doers. Sometimes they are. They have dual role. But uh, project managers are there to make sure that the team is able to do their tasks. So to clear any roadblocks that are in the way and to make sure the team is functioning as highly as they possibly can and, and acting as a conduit to the executive when there are issues that are outside the team's control and, and try to get those resolved. So that's managing down. But, but where I wanted to spend a bit more time was managing up uh, and managing to the executive. And when I mean managing up, I don't mean uh, saying everything's green and everything's great and, and taking 
taking the executive out to the bar and sweet talking them. No, (laughs) well, that might help. What I mean, (laughs) yeah, what I mean is managing expectations and and being honest and clear. And it kind of goes back to what I said at the very beginning when we were talking about not being afraid to be read. Okay, so what I'm talking about here is, uh, and it happens all throughout the project. It can happen on the first day of a project. Um, and, it, and, and what you have to do before you even get into this is to figure out, okay, what am I doing and where am I? So I'm a project manager that's worked for a lot of different organizations that all have different risk profiles. Okay, so I've worked for banks. You and I have worked for some of the same banks over the years. <laughs> yes, we have. <laughs> yeah, highly regulated, very risk adverse and to move very slowly, and that's not a bad thing, right? And it's a very Mm -hmm. structured, regimented environment. If you want to put a change in, you've got to go to a change board. It could take months to get your operational change slotted into the schedule. So very, very rigid. And so you're not going to um, want to shake things up too, too much uh, when when you're running your project. You want to make sure that you're working within their level of risk tolerance. So you don't want to be implementing a credit card solution that's not PCI DSS compliant, for example, right? Um, so, right. so that is working in a bank. Very, very, very um, low tolerance for risk. And I've also worked for media companies, which, believe it or not, in their own way, have a very high tolerance risk. So, and I went from a bank to a media company right after one another. So I finished a project up with the bank, uh, came back from Bermuda, and then I find myself working for a major media outlet in, in, in Canada uh, who nobody in the United States has ever heard of. And so they, they had a website they needed to put up, and the team was uh, uh, headed by sales group. And they have a very different risk tolerance than, say, uh, bank executives. And really, their risk was not getting the project in. So their risk was being beat to market by somebody else, right? So they wanted to put in a new module to help sell cars. And uh, we had to get that in fast in order to be able to beat a competitor that was building a similar module. So it was a completely different risk profile. We had, everything was about time. So yeah, it's going to be lumpy and bumpy and we might not be going alive with every single feature as long as everything that's customer facing is, is clear and we got to have some gerbils in the background running around the wheel while we go live. We're willing to live with that. So there was a lot <laughs> of risk acceptance, right? And again, not a bad thing if you understand the environment you're in. Right, and so mm-hmm, where a mm-hmm. lot of project managers run into trouble, uh, moving from one uh, vertical to another is not being able to make that transition. Right, and it, the same would be for BCM. Right, so mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. when you're working in the BCM field and you're used to working with banks or you're used to working with um, companies that's really low tolerance for risk, and then you find yourself working for a startup that is a completely different philosophy. You, you're going to have to adjust, and it's it's not a bad thing if they have a different tolerance for risk, right? It right. just means that you're right. going to be managing a different project. And so so you have to know this right at the top when you're managing to your executive and, uh, and when you get buy-in um, uh, to what it is that you're trying to accomplish. So, so just remember that right before you start. What kind of co- company are you working for? Find out from them if you're brand new what is their tolerance for risk and, and be specific. Like, you know, we can run some scenarios by them, right? So if the project is late, what does that mean? If a customer uh, has an error when they log on to the screen, what does that mean, right? Uh, you right. Know, to you as a, as a company. So you walk through those things and you, you get a sense of what their risk tolerance is. 
So, so when you start putting the project together and you start saying things, you think, hmm, this isn't going to work. <laughs> we don't have enough people on this team to deliver, for example. Uh, so they give you, this is your budget, this is your team, this is what you're going to deliver, and this is how long you have. Right, And then you start getting into it with the team. You start planning. You start realizing, hang on, we've got uh, five vacations planned over this five-month period. Um, everybody, it's, this project's running over the summer. Everybody's going on vacation. There is no way I'm going to make that timeline. So that's just a very simple example of something you would encounter that, say, the executive wasn't thinking of when they kicked off the project. So you sit down. You, you do your planning with the, with the team. And then you have to go, go right on schedule right? Because you're not going to make mm-hmm. it. The resources are fine. They can work the hours when they're in the office. It's just that they're not going to be there. So you've got to go back to the executive and say, this go-live date, what does that mean to you? How important is that to you that you make that go-live date? And and so what I usually do is I, I drop a, a little matrix. It was something I learned from the Microsoft Solution Framework uh, methodology back in years, like in the 90s, <laughs> when I was working with Microsoft. And and you, you look at, you look at uh, scope... Just the three. Let's not get too fancy. You've got scope, you got your schedule, right? And you've got your cost, right? Just take your three. They call that, the what's that, the triangle. triple constraint or something? Yeah, the triple constraint, exactly. Yeah. And so you, you look at those three, and I do a little chart, and it's not quite Pembaki, but it's what works for me. I do a little uh, chart, and I do the, the, the sponsor right off the top. And the sponsor, of course, is the executive who's accountable for the project. Stay with the sponsor, and you go, okay, i got scope. I got schedule and I got time and I've got constrained, I've got optimized and I've got accepted, right? So so you got to pick one, right? So something's got to be constrained. What can't move? Well, schedule, that can't move. Okay, that's fine. So I'm going to put that constraint. Okay, so between scope and money... What can what can go a little bit? Well, no, I need it. No, no, you can't just say you, can, you need everything. You've got to make a choice. What's more important to you? What we deliver or how much it's going to cost? Well, it's what we deliver. We need to deliver this, you know, as much as we can by that date. Okay, fine. So scope is optimized. So that means that you're accepting money. It's dangerous to accept money, but it's acceptable. The only thing you cannot accept is time. You can never put time in the accept column. And the reason why is because the project will never end, right? So, so you right. may as well just take well, that project. Well, then it's project, not a project, right, from your definition yeah. at the beginning. It, it has no end date. It's not a fact. Yeah, you just put it on hold and you put it on the back burner and start up the project in a year or something when you're ready for it. So, so you never find time going in the accept column, right? So, so you go through that with them. And back to my example with the vacation. So this guy, this or gal, uh, the person who's the sponsor on the project, they've decided that time is everything. They have to deliver on that date. Well, you've just discovered that you can't. So now you're looking at, hmm, well, we still we can't descope anything, or we can only descope a couple of things because uh, scope is optimized. So it looks like we're going to have to bring on some more staff, right? Mm-hmm. So that's and so if you do this matrix with the the um, executive up the front and have those decisions made, when you go to them with your issue, it's much easier to make that decision because you say, well, at the beginning of the project, we agreed to this matrix. Is that still true? Yes, that's still true. Well, then the answer is obvious, isn't it? Well, I guess it is. And so it, it gives 
the executive a, a basis, right, for make And when they put that matrix together, they're not just going to be making it up. It's going to be based on their strategic object- objectives, and, and, you know, this is going to be shopped around the organization, and it's not going to be a decision, hopefully not a decision made willy-nilly. So there's a structure in place, and there's a structure piece of thinking around what you're going to do to manage this issue, right, that's come up. And so, so they make the decision to bring on the staff. Well, okay, but can, how many staff can you bring on before you get diminishing returns, right? So then you go through that analysis and then hopefully you find the, the right staff complement you need and then you hopefully deliver on time and you deliver as much as you possibly can, right? And so right. that's what, that's managing expectations. You're going, you're getting in the, the sponsor's office and you're being full up honest with them saying, we can't deliver, I'm not magical, we, we cannot deliver with these resources, this scope, and this time frame. So let's talk about what we can do. And, and it's a scary conversation to have, and a lot of new project managers won't have that conversation. They'll just quietly try to get it done, and they'll, they'll, they'll put all kinds of stress on their team to make them try to accomplish that goal. So they, I, I've they run into even experienced project managers who are a little nervous about doing those kind of things. Yeah. You know. and, and yeah, you make it let go by an inexperienced executive who doesn't understand your value by saying that to them. And so, yes, there is bread and butter involved, and the crocodile brain does kick in. But, but, it, it, but if, if you really want to be a project manager that's respected and, and has a reputation and is called back years later by clients that you've worked with years ago, you, you have to behave that way. You have to be honest. And if they come back and say, too bad, you're going to have to deliver with, with what you have, um, you know, you have to make a decision, right? You have to make a decision to either come back to the team and, and stress them out and have them burn out and have even larger issues, or you can turn around and, uh, and decide you want to look for another project to work on and be very upfront. Now, sometimes leaving a project right. will make a statement in and of, of itself. It's a tough decision to make because you feel like you're abandoning your team, and a lot of people don't want to do that. They feel that they're part of the team. They want to be part of trying to do their best to make, make that solution work. But if you're not afraid to leave and make that statement, um, that team will never, ever um, uh, be able to get the, uh, what they need. You know what I mean? Because the project manager is, is shielding the issue by, um, by, by just accepting and, and, and trying to force the team to deliver something that really is impossible to deliver. So you're doing nobody a service. You're not doing the team a service. You're not doing the executive a service. You're not doing yourself a service. So if you're and, not, and that's really, when you can run into your team members are starting to leave and get burnt out yeah. and, you know, it just, exactly. you're never going to meet your objectives. Exactly. And so you're just going to fail and not be able to get a recommendation, right? But right. if you have the courage of your convictions and to say you're going to leave somebody in that room, the executive is going to say, wow, that person's got a lot of guts, right? They yeah. stood for their convictions. And that person's going to give you a call a few years down the road. But you see, it's tough as a project manager to be thinking that way, right? To be, to be thinking about relationship building in that manner by, by just showing your integrity and always showing up with your integrity intact. And sometimes it means having those tough decisions and even experienced project managers have a hard time with it. But if you can get around that, and I think in the BCM field, it's probably more important than any other field of project management because you're dealing with potential disaster, right? And, and, and so, human lives. You know, if you yeah. don't do something, there could be you know, worst case scenarios. There could be casualties if you're not that yeah. upfront and managing you know, effectively. Yes, these are not trivial discussions that you're having. Exactly. That's right. And so, 
so if, if you don't have your integrity intact when you walk away, then I think you failed as a person. Um, not so much, you know, and I think it's a project manager as well. So, so you know, it's kind of a tough thing to do, and it's the toughest part of being a project manager. Um, and I don't know if it's because I come from a legal background and it was very adversarial and I was a little bit toughened by that um, coming in. I, I got to that place a little sooner than uh, other project managers do, but it's just getting perspective and realizing that, um, yes, you're putting your career at risk potentially, but really are you. You know what I mean? Um, So, yes, that short term, you may. I think you touched on it. I I think executives, you know, when they hear how vulnerable they are after a risk assessment is done in a disaster plan, you know, where their gaps are, they'd rather hear the honest truth than hide it because they know in the end it's not going to make them look good either. No. No, exactly. Yeah. And if you're dealing with some, now, it's really tough when lives are lost, and then you have to make the decisions to work with the media. Like you know what I mean? So, so those are really yeah. just tough decisions, and that's when you do go see your lawyer. You know what I mean? So, so depending on the situation, it can get you know you have to be really careful about how you approach it. But, but I think if if it, as a person you're always looking to your personal integrity, and that if you walk away from a situation or a project knowing that um, that you stood up for what you believed was right, right? Which was the project, right? Because as a project manager, you're there to advocate for the project. And sometimes you have to advocate for the death of a project. Uh, that's another piece that you have to really be mindful of. You could be managing a project that's always red. I've had this. So how, how, would you, a project. how would you do that? Under what well, circumstances would you do that? Okay, so I'll give you a couple of, I'll give you an example. I was working in a pool uh, when I was in Bermuda. I was working for a bank and I was working in a pool with a lot of project managers. We had about seven, eight projects on the go at any one time. And I had a problem child. This project was always red. Um, never had the right resources, was always slipping on the schedule, and it was just, it was chronically red. And I was red all the time. And, and to the point where I was almost becoming a broken record. Oh, Roz is red on her project again. And so uh, I realized the reason why I was red, and I was learning as a project manager, and I came to the conclusion that the reason why I was red on the project was because the project wasn't a sufficient priority for the organization. The organization hadn't matured enough at that point, and they have since, but they hadn't matured at, the, at that point to do enterprise planning and portfolio management, right? So to figure out mm-hmm. what their strategic priorities are and then mapping all of their projects to those strategic priorities. Right? So the, the, the organization at that point wasn't mature enough. They just had a whole bunch of projects that people were working on. So a mature organization will be able to take that project, map that to a strategic priority that has its own priority. Right, And so you know where you are in the pecking order of projects. And so you know how, how easy it is for you to get resources for that project. So, so this problem child that I had that couldn't get any resources, I went to the sponsor and I said, well, uh, maybe we should put this, like, cancel it or put it on hold for a year because clearly it's not a, a big deal for the organization because we can't seem to get any resources to work on it. So I, I floated that up the chain and sure enough, the project got put on hold for a year. So essentially canceled for, the, for that cycle. And so I advocated for the death of the project because it wasn't doing anybody any service to be running overhead on a project that the organization actually didn't really care about. So right. That's when you oh. advocate for the death of a project. Wow. And so you, you, we just have a couple minutes left. So what is your one key most important aspect of project management? I think I have an idea of what it is, but I'd like to hear yeah. it from you. 
it's integrity, absolutely, um, uh, absolutely, and uh, and and being able to see uh, beyond. Uh, I think the ability to predict uh, the ability, and that just comes with experience. So having the integrity in your convictions, and also the ability to see things coming, uh, and that only comes with experience. Uh, you know, and, and so so uh, you will get there <laughs> as a project manager. But you know what, you'll. You'll get the ability to, to find the, the, the unknown unknowns and make them known. You'll get that with time. But your integrity, if you have that going in the door, they'll wait for you. They'll give you the experience that you need to be able to do that. They will mentor you along. If you come in the door and you demonstrate that you have that integrity and you're not afraid to go red and you're not afraid to say a project needs to die, um, they will make sure you, they will invest money in you and they will make sure that you have the experience down the road to do that risk management effectively. That's great. On that note, I'd like to thank Sue uh, for her sharing her expertise and all her knowledge. I hope that many of the BCP and DR people that have been listening have picked up some tips on maybe identifying why some of their projects and plans and uh, business continuity programs may not be as successful as they want them to be and hopefully learned a few tips on how they can manage them to make them better and stronger as they go forward. I do recommend strongly that if you are a BCM DR practitioner or emergency response, get some project management training. Understand the basics and Sue touched uh, on quite a few of those key items. So I recommend that to everyone. Again, I'd like to thank everyone for listening and Sue for joining and sharing her expertise. Thanks, everyone. We'll talk to you next week and stay prepared. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the voice america variety channel for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit VoiceAmericaVariety.com. the voice america talk radio network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio visit VoiceAmerica.com. the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the voice america talk radio network it's staff and management.